darkness breaks to light And the shadows disappear And my face shall be my eyes Jesus has overcome And the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise when He calls my name No more sorrow, no more pain I will rise on eagle's wings Before my God, fall on my knees and rise I will rise And I hear the voice of many angels sing Worthy is the Lamb And I hear the cry of every longing heart privilege for us to be here with you. Thank you for having us. Um, uh, we've already heard that we're going to be thinking about the rapture uh, or the second coming. And um, I guess a, a preliminary uh, statement, all born-again believers believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus, right? Every Christian believes he's coming back. Now, uh, there is uh, differences in the 
stages, if you will, how this is going to unfold. And so uh, we're going to be thinking of the second coming, but what we're going to be thinking about in the next sessions we have together is the stages, how it unfolds, the timing. And so, of course, that's where the word uh, rapture comes in. It's one of the stages. We're going to be thinking about that. So uh, we're going to work through uh, some sort of foundational ideas today. Uh, you know, what kind of Christians need to understand the study of eschatology? Uh, this is a word, sounds theological, it is. Uh, what does it mean? Eschatology simply means the study of future events, the study of prophecy. Uh, is there prophecy in the Bible? Yeah. How much of the Bible is prophecy? Well, some would tell us a quarter, more than a quarter. Uh, there's lots of prophecy. Uh, it's important. Uh, prophecy is important uh, for the Bible because, as God says in the Old Testament, only he can tell how things are going to unfold and then see them exactly come to pass as he prophesied. Right? Uh, uh, God was very strict with Israel. Uh, he said that a man, if he got one prophecy wrong, right? If he said something was going to happen and... Um, and it didn't happen. He was not a prophet of God. So prophets had to have a hundred percent success rate uh, to be acknowledged as a prophet of God. Some some tell us that maybe this is why uh, uh, Jonah was so hesitant to prophesy against Nineveh because. Uh, he knew that God was merciful, and so uh, he would pronounce this judgment. Uh, God, in His mercy, wouldn't wouldn't pass that judgment on uh, the men of women of Nineveh, and Jonah would actually be out of a job. Now, we're not saying that's what's happened, but we understand this idea of prophecy is very important. So, we want to turn to Acts chapter 17 first, and think about. Uh, just a, uh, an idea, uh, just a, a thought from X, Acts chapter 17 that we trust is going to help us. Um, this is a passage that tells us how the Apostle Paul came uh, to Thessalonica. Verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And so uh, we want to emphasize from here is that uh, this was how Paul saw the gospel move forth. It says this was his custom. This is how he went into a city and saw a church established. Uh, these people were uh, idol worshipers. We get that from the first epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. Uh, we have how long he was there. Right, He was there three weeks. So if you or I, if you were going to go in and, and see a church established in a group of people, a city, a group of people who are idol worshipers, and um, you had three weeks, three weeks to teach them, and, and notice three Sabbaths, 
right? Not, you know, uh, not 21 days of conference ministry. He reasoned for three Sabbaths. Now, we understand this, too, that, that um, uh, you know, the public teaching of the Word of God was, was half of the teaching that the Apostle Paul did, right? Uh, he understood that, that um, there had to be one-on-one. Right, we get that from uh, again from the book of Acts that Paul, uh, in reminding the Ephesian elders how he ministered, he said, "You remember that that we didn't just teach the word of God publicly, but we taught it from house to house." Right, and so the apostle Paul would go around from house to house and visit the Christians and minister to them the word of God. So uh, he had three Sabbaths. Uh, well, that was all day. It's still not that much teaching. And so the question we want to answer is, well, what kind of things do you think he would teach? What would you teach? What do Christians need to know to uh, live successful Christian lives? Well, again, this is one of the things we don't have to speculate on. We have Paul's teaching to these believers in the two epistles to the Thessalonians. And so turn um, to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And we'll go through some of these ideas. And again, we're trying to think through uh, this idea. Would eschatology be something that Christians who are three weeks old need to know? Would Christians who have been saved for uh, three weeks or less need to know about the coming of the Lord? Well, Paul would say, yeah, they do. Uh, in fact, we're going to see that the coming of the Lord is in every chapter in First Thessalonians. Uh, and so in chapter 1, um, the Apostle Paul reminds them how the gospel came. Notice this, we'll start in verse 6, chapter 1. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's ask the Lord again for his help. Father, we're uh, thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the reminder already that we need your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God to teach us, to help us to understand Father, we're reminded that uh, when men labor, it's a, a labor in vain. That's only you who can uh, build the house through your word, by your spirit. And so we cast ourselves upon you for your blessing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we want to emphasize at the beginning that the coming of the Lord was included in Paul's gospel message. Right? It needs to be emphasized that that the Apostle Paul, in his declaration of the gospel, included the coming of the Lord. Um, I have a friend who, who, who said, made the statement that when he was a boy, 
when he was a boy, he never remembers a message that didn't include the coming of the Lord at some level. Hey, uh, you know, we had um, verses this morning uh, from Philippians. Uh, we had uh, Philippians 4. Uh, we had 4 and 5. Do we have verses 4 and 5? Is that right? Somebody stood up here. Who did 4 and 5? Oh, they're gone. They're gone to class, right? Uh, and so we had 4 and 5, and then we had... Um, uh, Philippians 4 verse 6. Remember, how are those two verses tied together? This idea of love and, and forgiveness and relationship together. How are those two verses tied together? Well, the coming of the Lord is what ties those ideas together, right? And, and so, uh, in every aspect of the Christian life, the Apostle Paul saw that the coming of the Lord was foundational. And, and so here he talks about it, in, as we say in the Gospel message, he says that when he came to Thessalonica, uh, that these people turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Uh, I guess we could uh, we could be reminded that that the Apostle Paul didn't preach negatively, did he? He didn't have to uh, expose to the Thessalonians that their idols were dead, right? He didn't have to do that. Uh, he could simply uh, lift up the living God and let them establish in their minds. Hey, they knew there was a problem with their idols. Uh, this is the one of the themes of, of eating meat in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? This idea that, that um, you know, people were offering meat to the idols in the temple, and how much of the meat were the idols eating? None. And, and so it was coming in the front door, and these priests... Didn't know what to do with it, so they were selling it out the back at a discounted rate. You get rid of all this meat, and um, some of the Christians who were poor slaves, they were um, buying this meat. And in the uh, spirit of hospitality, offering it to some of the other Christians. And so this was the dilemma. Uh, so they knew their idols weren't living. So as the Apostle Paul lifted up the living God, they could see that it was different than what they had. And so, um, it was reminded this morning in Gospel Witness, a brother praying that he might be the fragrance of the living Christ to a lost world. Hey, Jesus is the answer to all of human need and human heart. And so, the Apostle Paul could come in and, and lift up the living God in his gospel message, and, and, and the Thessalonians saw it. They turned to God. They had this bold testimony. They were glad to, he says, serve the living God. But um, that's only half of the Christian faith, isn't it? Um, often it's the easier part, serving, being busy. Uh, the hard part is waiting. Do you like waiting? Uh, it's always been a challenge for Christians to wait. You think of all the um, times in Scripture where Christians, uh, believers in God, got into trouble because they couldn't wait. Exodus chapter 32. One of the saddest times in uh, Israel's history. Right? What was the problem? They couldn't wait. Remember what happened? They said this. Uh, 
said to, to Aaron, Aaron, come, make us a calf. This man, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. We can't wait any longer. He's been gone over a month. Well, actually, uh, probably it was less than that. The whole term was 40 days on the mount, so it was probably less than that. He's been gone two weeks or three weeks, and we can't wait any longer. And they fell into heinous sin before God because they couldn't wait. Uh, what was Saul's downfall? When was the kingdom taken from King Saul? Think about that. When was the kingdom taken from King Saul? What was in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel? What was the context? Why did Saul lose the kingdom? You remember that um, his enemies had surrounded him. And um, he was what? He was waiting for Samuel. And he couldn't wait any longer. How long was the whole duration? Uh, the whole duration was uh, seven days. So at the seven-day mark, he said, I can't wait any longer. And so he took and he made a sacrifice. And you remember what Samuel said? Samuel said to Saul, this day... God would have established your kingdom forever if you could have waited. But um, he's going to take it and he's going to give it to a man after his own heart. Lots of speculation on um, how was David a man after God's own heart. One of the ways I would suggest, maybe the way, is that he was a man who knew how to wait. I mean... You read the Psalms, and, and as we were reminded this morning, I mean, David was a man who knew something about the help of the Lord, but he also knew how to wait. Uh, if you had to um, pick the highlight of uh, David's career before the Lord, what would it be? Well, 1 Samuel 17, Right? I mean, this idea of David and Goliath. Hey, how many movies use that plot line? The little conquering the great. Hey, they're all, that's always the story, isn't it? That's what people love. Little lad taking on a giant. Um, that's what people saw. But who really was David in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Was he just a fair-haired lad? Well, I asked the question, hey, what happened in chapter 16? What happened in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the chapter before, 17? He was anointed the king of Israel. So although Saul and his brothers just saw him as a little boy, he was actually the anointed king of Israel when he went down into the valley of Elah. You would have thought that would have come out in the conversation somewhere, wouldn't it have? When Saul said, hey, you're not qualified. David says, well, actually, I'm the anointed king. No, he was waiting, wasn't he? Um, you get this presented often. Uh, David's right-hand man would say, hey, Saul's asleep. The Lord has delivered him. Let me smite him to the ground with a spear. And uh, Abishai says, hey, listen, I won't have to do it twice. David says, no, he's the Lord's anointed. What was he doing? He was waiting. And he was waiting 
and he was waiting. Uh, the whole process took years. You say, well, does that make him a man after God's own heart? Is the Lord waiting? Is he waiting? I remember um, some years ago preaching the Union Gospel Mission. It's a street mission in our town. A uh, lively crowd. You know, um, not uncommon for them to yell out, you know, something from the crowd. If they didn't like what you said. Shut up and sit down. Or uh, hurry up, we're hungry. Um, I remember saying to the crowd, you know, a rhetorical question, not really expecting an answer. Has anybody ever wondered why the Lord Jesus hasn't come back? And a guy way in the back yells out, I've been wondering that. <laughs> like, hey, it's actually an easy question to answer. Peter answers it for us. He says, hey, um, uh, you know, the, the doubters were saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? He said he would come back and he hasn't. Peter says, hey, make no mistake. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some consider, but is long-suffering, not willing. In fact, he's waiting that all might be saved. And so it's not impossible, even as we preach the gospel today, that in a crowd today, that there's somebody here that the Lord is waiting for. And so David knew how to wait. And so... The Apostle Paul says that half of the Christian life is waiting for the coming of the Lord. Now, it doesn't um, make us lazy. It actually motivates. And so the first point, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The coming of the Lord was connected to, God, uh, to Paul's gospel preaching. He included it in his gospel message. Okay, in the foundation of the gospel, he preached the coming of the Lord. Okay, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that his motivation for Christian service was the coming of the Lord. I mean, this is important, important to be reminded. He was not results orientated. He had this ability to look past present tense. In fact, he could say this, that uh, as he moved through life, and um, met people, uh, he didn't necessarily need to see them converted on the spot. He, he said, what was his motivation is that when the Lord Jesus comes back, he would be able to look around and see these people that he'd come in contact with, would be shared with, preached to, and see them in the presence of the Lord Jesus. 
That was his hope, joy. Not present tense, beyond. So in Christian service, are you content to be a link in the chain? I have a book at home, um, Going Public with Your Faith. And, um, you know, this whole concept of being a witness. Well, you know, in the Bible, witnessing is not something you do. It's something you are. The Lord Jesus didn't say to his disciples, go out and witness for me. He said, you are my witnesses. Your whole life will be a witness. Hey, that's why when there's conflict in the local church between a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister or however that looks, this is a poor witness for the Lord Jesus. Right, because we believe in the message of reconciliation, right, that people, sinners need to be reconciled to a holy God. But if they can't see it in the local church, what value is it? And so the Apostle Paul was was content to be a link in the chain. And so these brothers who talk about going public with their faith say this. Hey, a conversion, anybody's conversion is, you know, 20 events, you know, something, it's a number. Right? Whatever that is, it's a number. And, and, and so you hear these testimonies of people and everybody has this in common that they see this process in which God worked. And so the apostle Paul was content, happy in fact, before the Lord to be a link in that chain. Just to sort of, uh, as these brothers would say, come alongside and if it's a glass of water, a kind deed, a good work done in the name of Jesus, simply to be a link in the chain. You know, I remember uh, uh, a year or so ago, driving to an assembly. It's four hours from our house on a Sunday morning. I'd get up early and, and drive. It was a nice day, fall day. Um, now, this would be hard, I think, for you to conceive of, but you know, we have places in our province where there's uh, you know 65 miles of road where nobody lives. Have you ever seen 65 miles of road where nobody lives? Have you ever seen a place like that? Uh, and so it's a high mountain pass. It's Merritt, British Columbia. I guess Merritt, there's, uh, I don't know, 6,000 people live there. And it's 65 miles over this mountain to the next town. And it's a small town as well. And, and so it's this long drive. So I, when I'm coming into Merritt, I've got this little uh, two-person cargo van. And I have some... Uh, the vending stuff in the back, you know, stuff that helps people like pop and chips and chocolate bars. And I've got this in and in the back. And when I, I'm coming down into merit, I'm listening to a message uh, on Voices for Christ that's convicting, convicting to me of my um, lack of sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so as I'm I'm coming down into the merit, I'm convicted. I'm like, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I need to see these divine appointments, you know, be able to look past the uh, you know what goes into a letter uh, or, or uh, a testimony just just this idea of being sensitive to the coming of the lord and and to to that day you know the apostle paul writes about and uh so i pull into the gas station in merit and i go into the back and i grab a bottle of water out of the back and i bring it up and i put it in the between the seats and and um i'm gonna drink that and and i leave there and i drive up uh, out of out of merit and I drive for you know about a half an hour 30 30 miles or whatever it is and I come around this corner and uh it's a long 
straight stretch and a hill in the, the distance. And I see a black, something black on the side of the road. So I think that's an animal. I don't think it's an animal. So I drive and get up. And, and when I pass, it's a guy sitting in a black hoodie. And he's got the hoodie over his face. And he's sitting kneeling. And he looks at me as I drive by. Doesn't stick out his thumb. And uh, the Lord says, pick him up. I'm like, well, I uh, can't. I've got to get to the meeting. I, You know, it's going to be tight already. And uh, I feel like the Lord says, pick him up. I'm like, well, I got all this stuff on the seat. Now I'm a couple miles past him. And, and the Lord is like, pick him up. I'm like, okay, I really don't see how this could work. But I, I slow down. I turn, go through the median, turn, and I grab the stuff that's on the seat, and I just throw it over the seat. So that really only took like three or four seconds to move the seat. But um, So I turn around, I come back and come around and pull over and roll down the window. He says, hey, do you need a ride? He goes, yeah. So he gets in and, and I can see in his eyes that he's, uh, you know, when I first went by him, I thought like he's drug or, you know, drug related. That's what it looks like. But, you know, as he gets in, I see he's, uh, it's not that necessarily. Like he's got challenges, but... Uh, it's not that. And um, so I said, hey, what's your name? He says, Mike. I said, I'm Rob. Uh, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Summerland. And so we started driving. I said, hey, uh, you okay? Have you eaten? Or he says, no, I'm really thirsty. I'm like, hey, I got a bottle of water right here. So he takes that. He's drinking. And I'm like, hey, how did you, uh, how did you get there from Merritt? He says, I walked. I'm like, 30 miles you walked? How long does that take? He says, it's 1 in the morning. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, yeah, I got dropped off at Merritt at 1 in the morning, and I walked to where you picked me up. I'm like, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. I said, uh, you know, I don't always pick people up. I said, but, I mean, I, I said, Mike, I don't even know how to say this. Uh... The Lord told me to pick you up. Do you know how that could be possible? He said, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, how could that be possible? He said, I was just asking him for help. Now, it would be nice if I could tell you that uh, I led Mike to the Lord before Summerland. I didn't. But um, I expect at the coming of the Lord to see Mike there. Not because me, but because I could see that the Lord was involved in Mike's life. He was working. He was answering Mike's prayer. Um, I'm just thankful that, that um, in the language of the Apostle Paul, it could maybe be a link in the chain. And so... Uh, chapter 1, the coming of the Lord, is linked to Paul's gospel preaching. In chapter 2, the coming of the Lord is linked to his motivation for service. Right? He said, hey, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to work out in a coming day. And so he says, that's what I look for. Not for results necessarily in the present tense, because often things don't go as planned. But the Lord is working. So that's chapter 2. Chapter 3... 
verse 13. No, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love one to another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. And so uh, in chapter 3, the context is sanctification. Right? That's what Paul is talking about, living the Christian life. Uh, conversion is chapter 1. Uh, that's the beginning the Christian walk, right? That's where it starts. It starts at conversion. But, you know, the Lord didn't just save us from something. He saved us to something, right? You know, uh, uh, God didn't just call Abraham out of, but he actually called him into a promise, right? The Christian life is not negative. It's positive, right? And you can gauge that in your own life, right? Uh, somebody says to you, uh, you're a Christian, What's a Christian? You say, well, uh, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear. Uh, Jabe says his dog does that. And he's not a Christian. So that's not what makes a Christian. You know, uh, uh, there's a book on so great salvation from the brothers at Dallas Theological. And he's got about uh, 35 35 or 37 things that happen to you the moment or that millisecond uh, you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, make no mistake about it, they're all positive, right? And so uh, sanctification, that, that, that set-apart life, as we were reminded of this morning, uh, living holiness. Well, but the Apostle Paul says that that's linked to the coming of the Lord, right? That this is a motivator to live. To live a holy life. And so here he's talking about uh, relationships um, and how the coming of the Lord affects relationships. It makes sense, I think. Uh, uh, James tells us that the judge stands at the door, right? The judge stands at the door, this idea that, that he's waiting. And so uh, we know this, that, that, um, that for us who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and we say that's our stand, that after the Lord Jesus comes to the air for his own, that there's going to be some accountability, judgment seat of Christ. And um, and it would be sad to think about uh, going into that next scene in time, uh, broken relationships. And so the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 is, is reminding the Thessalonians that he presented the coming of the Lord in the context of a sanctified life. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul earlier in chapter 3 says this. Uh, he wanted to come and see them. Uh, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Notice this line. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Well, we already saw in chapter 1 that these men, women of Thessalonica were truly converted. How could Paul's labor ever be in vain or empty if they're already saved? Well, simple. Paul was not interested in making converts. You catch that? Paul was not interested in making converts. He was interested in making disciples. Why would he be interested in making disciples? Well, because that's what the commission is. 
The commission is to go into the world and to make disciples, followers. And so the Apostle Paul had seen all these converts in Thessalonica, people who were truly converted, and he said, hey, listen, if they didn't continue on, if they didn't walk in the faith, live sanctified lives, he said, my labor would be in vain, it would be empty. And so chapter 3, the coming of the Lord as a motivator for living a sanctified life. This is what John says. He says, those people who have this hope purify themselves. They live different. You know, um, you probably heard the illustration that, that um, you know, Bill McDonald lived his life in the context of the coming of the Lord. In fact, he wouldn't go places... He wouldn't go places uh, for fear that the Lord Jesus might come back and find him there. I said, well, what kind of places? Well, one of his uh, you know, convictions was a movie theater. He wouldn't go to a theater. I'm way past that. But um, that was his conviction, right? Wouldn't go to a movie theater. And so, uh, you know, when um, Chariots of Fire came out, he wanted to see it but he wouldn't go to a theater to see it. And so uh, Jabe told me that one day Bill phoned and said to him, hey, guess what was on the plane when I was flying for ministry? Chariots of Fire, the Lord wanted me to see it. He gave me the opportunity to see it on a plane. He said, well, it'll cost him $3,000 to see it, but <laughs> the Lord was looking out for him. And, and so, but the point is that he lived his life in this context of the coming of the Lord, a sanctified life. Okay, chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The coming of the Lord is a comforting doctrine. That's the point. Now we're going to think about... First uh, Thessalonians, as we move through this idea, not more this morning, uh, or sorry, this chapter, uh, chapter 4, First Thessalonians, we're going to have to work through that because there are three main passages in the New Testament that teach the rapture of the church. First Corinthians chapter 15, John chapter 14, and First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now it's sprinkled throughout. There's lots of the rapture we're going to suggest, but this is a main passage. We're going to work on it uh, further on in our study. But for this morning, as we're thinking of the, the practicality or the value uh, of this, this study based on 1 Thessalonians, here it's a doctrine of comfort. This idea that the Lord Jesus is coming back is a comfort. It answers some of the big questions of life. You know, Solomon wrote three books in the Bible. Um... One when he was in love, uh, one about wisdom, wisdom from above, the wisdom of God, the book of Proverbs, we've heard from the Proverbs this morning, and um, one that could be entitled emptiness, 
Ecclesiastes is, is, is really the hard questions in life. Uh, his dilemma, he had all this stuff. He tried all these things. And then death came. It seemed like it was over. This is this no value. Acquire all these things, and then your life is gone. And it's all for nothing. It's all vain, all empty. The coming of the Lord answers that question. It's a doctrine of comfort. Dan Smith from Emmaus preached at our conference in Hundred Mile some years back and told the story of going into uh, seniors' home, seniors' care home, linked to the assembly. Visit a sister. We got there. She was sitting there weeping. He said, "What's wrong?" She said, Brother so-and-so was just in to see me. And he says, I look great. She says, I don't feel great. Nothing's working. It's all falling apart. So Dan Smith said he read to her, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Hey, this isn't the end. Real life is yet before us. You heard the illustration, D.L. Moody. He said to the congregation one Sunday, Hey, listen, someday you're going to read in the paper, Old Man Moody has died. He said, Don't believe it. I'll be more alive in that day than I am in this day. Hey, the Lord Jesus is coming back for those who know Him. And um, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to get a new body. John says, a body like unto his glorious body. No sin. Be able to appreciate him, understand the magnitude of the work that he accomplished at the cross of Calvary. And so the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a comforting doctrine. Chapter 5. Now may, he says in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And so, again, it's maybe a summary of some of the things we've already been thinking about. But again, Paul is emphasizing this idea of how people live who have this hope. Right? That's what he's talking about. Uh... Then he's talking about the faithfulness of God. And that's important to think about because um, those who would challenge uh, the view of a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, and there's many, make no mistake about it, there's many who would challenge that view in Christian radio or in the church today. Um, somehow they have to get around this idea of the promises that God made to Israel. God made real promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And and so somehow uh, they get around that. This idea that God won't fulfill those promises. That somehow he's found a way to uh, get around fulfilling what he told Israel he would do on their behalf. And so the end, 
the Apostle Paul, in his doctrine of the coming of the Lord, establishes it based on God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness. We suggest that's the faithfulness of God in all of Scripture, that he made promises and he's going to keep them. Hey, the Lord Jesus, when he went back to heaven, what did he say to his disciples? I will come again. Why? So that we can be with him. That's what he wants. He wants us to be with him. Uh, He said he'd go to prepare a place for us. If he wants us with him, uh, why is he so long in coming? Why does he leave us here? Well, some have said, and maybe it's true, uh, yes, he went to prepare a place for us, but maybe what's going on today is he's preparing us for that place, working in us, working through us. We're thankful when that happens, but mostly what he's doing in us, changing us, conforming us. And so the Apostle Paul, in his preaching... Thessalonica, the first epistle that he wrote chronologically, 1 Thessalonians is the first epistle. Uh, He was there three weeks, right? Uh, I don't suggest he had a lot of meetings, but he presented the coming of the Lord as practical for every aspect of life. Linked with his gospel message, linked with his Christian service in chapter 2, right? Linked with sanctification, chapter 3, our set-apart life in the context of the coming of the Lord. Chapter 4, a message of comfort. Christians need comfort. The coming of the Lord is a message of comfort. And then a summary, and then every area of life, the coming of the Lord is a practical doctrine. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're uh, thankful for your word this morning. Uh, We're thankful for the promise of the Lord Jesus that he will come again. Uh, Father, we want to be those like the Apostle Paul, who are living in the light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus, that we want to be those who, with John, praying, even so, uh, come Lord Jesus. Father, help us to be found those found watching, waiting, loving his appearing, that we would make real choices today in the light of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus. Bless your people. Thank you for them. Thank you for the time together. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.